2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, your host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dante Stewart about his book, Shouting in the Fire, An American Epistle. Welcome to the show, Dante.
1: Hey, Dr. Gessler, so good to be with you.
2: I am so glad that you're here and that we get to talk about your book. I wonder if, to start us off, you will please tell us a bit about yourself.
1: Yes, yeah, so I I am Dante Stewart. Um, I am currently living in Augusta, Georgia. Um, I'm a husband. I'm a father. Um, I have be- two beautiful children. I'm, my wife and I we've been married uh, for seven years now, and then my wife is in the Air Force, uh, so we're stationed here in Augusta, Georgia. Um, we're both from South Carolina, so I'm born and raised in the rural part of South Carolina, uh, where I like to tell people that the best food, you know, for us. Uh, is at the gas station, as you know, as you read my book, you know that the gas stations and food show up a lot, uh, or uh, whatnot, in food, in 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 my in my book, and so I'm from that rural part. We're both into Clemson. I'm now, you know, I'm now I'm a, uh, a minister uh, at uh, Tabernacle Baptist Church, as well as as many people know now, <laughs> a writer uh and a student currently at Emory University, the Campbell School of Theology at Emory University. Uh, doing my uh, uh, theological studies, um, particularly on James Baldwin and doing a close uh, theological and literary reading of Baldwin uh, and kind of seeing what can be gleaned from Baldwin. So yeah, that's a little bit about me.
2: Thank you for sharing that. Our listeners are pretty interested in higher ed. So can you tell us how you chose your college?
1: Yeah, actually, you know, this story is, is is quite interesting. So I was originally at two schools before I end up being at Emory University. Um, and for those who read the book, uh, they will know that, you know, I was very deeply immersed in uh, Southern Baptist tradition of religion and doing doing faith life and things like that. And so usually, you know, and this holds true for for I mean, outside of religious spaces as well, just in in general, usually the people who, who you're around most, uh, who you're closely connected to, who is in your social networks, are usually those whom, you know, you go to school where they go to school. You know, so if you're uh, living in South Carolina, you know, the two big schools are Clemson University and South Carolina, uh, University of South Carolina. So, you know, you start talking about going to school uh, and and especially if you start playing, if you play sports like I did, you know, for, for a lot of us, Uh, growing up there, you know, those are the two main options. Even if uh, we, we, we don't really think about, sadly, we don't think about, uh, going to HBCUs, which we should, um, or, or whatnot. So being inside of those Southern Baptist spaces, you know, I was at originally at two conservative, uh, seminaries. Uh, first I was at the Southern Baptist theological seminary, uh, and then I transferred to reform theological seminary. Um, and then, you know, I kind of went through a transformation, uh, in my own thinking and in my own life around 2016, 2017. And, you know, it, it kind of untethered me from so many ways of thinking and being in the world. And I started really thinking about education and, and, and if I'm going to be spending money, what type of degree need do I need to be getting as well as what type of person, uh, is that institution trying to form me into, you know, once I walk across the stage, you know, with a degree from their institution, and I'm also thinking about, you know, as it relates to curriculum and 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 what type of curriculum uh, would I be immersed in? What type of networks would that school immerse me in uh, uh, regarding ideas of race, gender, sexuality, and demographics, and denominational uh, and even religious traditions? So I wanted somewhere, you know, that I can go and be myself uh, as a as a as a person, but also. Uh, that that I can broaden my understanding of myself uh, and, and my own kind of embodied experience. And so I knew I needed better curriculum. I knew I needed better faith traditions. I knew I needed better conversation partners and colleagues. Um, and so then, you know, through 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 many kind of uh, conversations and things like that, I, I decided that Emory University uh, was the school for me. And now, you know, a year and a half later, uh, it has proven true to be. Uh, institution that, that really, 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 um, I, I think does a really good job at forming us and informing us um, and challenging us uh, 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 in, in many ways, but also as an institution that I think has a lot of room to grow uh, um, or whatnot. And so I think, you know, for the time, for the duration that I'm here, you know, I want to join many of the other students who either came before me or who are currently here or trying to help emory uh particularly Kendall school of theology become the best type of institution that it can be um and so yeah that's kind of you know why i chose chose this school because of the rigor you know the academic rigor uh but also the kind of uh uh intellectual imagination and creative creative engagement that i felt like i was going to get here that
2: that's wonderful that you've had such a path through so many places that really helped you be very intentional about where you are now. Mm-hmm. Um, when you first started higher ed though, you were at Clemson. You were an undergrad, mm-hmm. and you write about that quite a bit in the book. Um, Clemson is a very white school. Oh, and yes. It was a really, it was a culture shock. And it was a time where you were really remaking your identity and something that you would spend... A lot of years then really looking at and reckoning with all that time that you spent at Clemson. Can you can you talk to us about that?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Great question. So, like, I I love the way you kind of characterize my story is this idea of making myself and remaking myself. And I and I think, you know, that gets at the heart of 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 the kind of narrative that sits at the center of my book is that wrestling with that question of what does it mean to be black and Christian and American um and 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 how to navigate the ways in which those in uh identities intersect uh in in some of the most beautiful and terrible ways possible and so like you said it really was a a a, a moment of, of of learning and relearning and really that process, begins really back at home in my Pentecostal upbringing and, and in some sense in, in, in rural South Carolina, where so many of us who grow up where I grew up at uh, in St. Matthews, uh, between St. Matthews, Swansea and, and Sandoron, uh, when you start talking about, quote unquote, making it, uh, oftentimes it, the, the kind of message underneath, you know, or less laced within that idea of quote unquote, making it is, you know, proximity to white spaces, and so many of us, when I was I was pretty decent at football um, or, or whatnot. And so many of us started talking about being recruited. It was like, you know, the the, the top schools in many ways are predominantly white institutions, i.e. Clemson and the University of South Carolina. Uh, and it, in some sense, it it upholds this 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 unspoken reality that white is right and better and that whiteness and white social life and social space, as I would deem many of these institutions, that that white social space will get me where I believe I need to go. But as I write about in the book, that we have to always be asking the question, when I enter into certain spaces, what is the cost and what is the price to pay? And so as I talk about in the chapter wages, you know, there's always a cost to my presence. And oftentimes in these uh, institutions, you know, uh, as as young black people uh, and 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 other uh, demographics, uh, we are those whom the cost is incurred the most. Uh, we are the ones who have to pay the largest price, um, whether that be through our silence or whether that be through our assimilation or whether that be through our performance. Um, it's almost an expectation of the institution that we would, you know, as I write about, jump high, run run fast. Uh, 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 or whatnot and just be about our schoolwork and not make too much commotion about, you know, the kind of space that we're living in. And so at Clemson, uh, it it was not all a bad experience. I I met my wife there. I I spent some time playing football. You know, I had a great time playing ball. I met great friends. Uh, I felt like I got a really, really good degree and I really keep in touch with so many of the, 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 the academic staff that's there still to this day who either have transitioned or still there, you know, but, uh, but at the end of the day, as I write about, you know, the, the, the script, there, there's a, there's a hidden script. Uh, and, 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 I would even say that there's a hidden logic, you know, underneath all of us coming there and being there and, and, and kind of, you know, being in that space and a hidden logic is in some sense, You know, the 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 upholding of white domination and white power structures, whether that be through curriculum, whether that be through decision making, whether that be through, you know, something as simple as last year when Clemson football put Black Lives Matter stickers on the helmet and the fan base went absolutely crazy simply because the football team made a decision. The players made a decision that they wanted to stand in solidarity with Black Lives But for many of the fan base and many of the people who are invested in that type of institutional space, the cost is too great for them to believe that black people are not just simply human, but worthy of the deepest love and worthy of the same type of protection that they want for their children. And so when many of us come from rural spaces, when we go into these white social spaces, oftentimes, you know, we kind of get along, you know, so we don't make too much commotion and we kind of get our degree and we kind of, you know, move into the world and never really asking, you know, what, 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 what is, who is benefiting uh, in this environment? Who is benefiting by me being there? And I think this is one of the critical uh, things that I learned at Clemson, uh, whether that be, was through the kind of white religious spaces I was moving through or playing football is that, you know, you know, the, 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 the university and the context there really could survive without ever take in seriously our black humanity. And I think that's something critical for people to think about is that w- what spaces can survive without without taking into account another person's humanity. And oftentimes that will reveal a space that was not built for us. And I would say, as, as, as many of us students walk and see the name of slaveholders still on university buildings. Um, and, and when you talk about who's making the decisions for our lives and, and curriculum and what type of world we are being invited to and what type of world is being shaped for us, many of those people don't look like us. And I think we need to take and take that into account. And so, yeah, being at Clemson, it was beautiful, but I do think that it shaped me in ways, you know, that, that I, that I took for granted, especially, uh, in the ways that I learned to divinize white social space and whiteness and learn to demonize our black lives and the kind of worlds we were building. And so, yeah, that's probably the way I would kind of begin to think about that question.
2: There's so much about your experience at Clemson that really informs the book and the trajectory that you go on from there to where you are now. There are so many things that you wrote about that stood out to me. Um, One was your description about being a football player and about how white fans treated you and your realization that you could sacrifice your entire body for them and that would be fine. Um, Another was the way you talked about the fans' enthusiasm and being on the team and the games. To me, it felt like a religious experience, the frenzy that people got into, the energy, the um, sense of rightness. Can, can you talk about what football was for you at Clemson? And if I'm on the if I read that correctly, that you were overlaying some of that sense of almost a religion of football.
1: So, yeah, yeah, I was I was actually at homecoming last week and it was kind of crazy, especially thinking about football as religion. Uh, and I, I thought about the aesthetic of being there and what message, what stories are being told in this type of environment. Um, and I think that's really what I'm trying to get at is, and, and I read a really good, really good book not too long ago by Richard Hughes called Myths. I, I mean, called, um, uh, um, it's, 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 it's called, uh, uh, dang, um, it's, it's about myths and the story that gives American meanings. Uh, and, and, and Richard Hughes was talking about white supremacy and, and the ways in which like myth is not just simply a fictitious story. But it is a story that people make sense of the world and present the world in coherent form. And it helps them name, see and act within the world. And as I was sitting there at the football game and and, and the kickoff was about to get started and uh, our, our team has already come down the hill, uh, the cannons done blew, and the fireworks are going off and I'm sitting, you know, in a sea of white fans and i'm looking around and i'm like you know there's spurts of like black people around me and i'm you know it's 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 more than just simply a little bit but given the 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 number of fans there you know it feels like a spurts in my section and i'm looking and now it comes on 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 the on the telecom you know we're going to stand for the anthem then we're going to stand we're going to hey put your hand over your heart and we're going to say the pledge of allegiance then we're going to have an invocation so they have a prayer uh before the football game and and things and and then you know it, it, it has a section about you know a hero of the month or, or uh things like that and when it, uh, and, and 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 it has time where, where so much of this idea of patriot patriotism and religion is wrapped up within football and for many people they would many many would think that something like that is just simply harmless but i think we have to wrestle with the question of what story is this telling me especially when you talk about you know the the the, the this this idea of patriotism and whose life matter and and, and when it comes to like who should guide this program you know i think about th- this on the heels of, of 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 many of the things that have been happening you know politically you know and, and talking about the flag and talking about and and, and talking about the, the the anthem and wrestling with the question you know uh that, that that many have a problem with like young athletes you know i mean many don't have a problem with young athletes using their platform for military appreciation game or breast cancer awareness month um or or, or whatnot but it's not necessarily you know the platforms you know that that is the problem but it's the way in which you know people want to control you know the ways in which we stand in solidarity with our black humanity and this and and in some sense this idea of, of 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 who matters and who don't like what who like like who gets to guide the institution and the program and who don't uh is wrapped up in some sense in this idea of religion. I think when we're talking about religion, i mean I'm thinking about the 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 kind of grounding what we think in in morality and rightness and 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 what should be and and a certain type of givenness. And, you know, I I think many have have taken for granted that that many when we talk about black athletes in general, many of us have given, you know, we talk about the ultimate sacrifice, I I and 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 you know, and 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 talking about death and life, the ultimate sacrifice is not just simply giving your life and death, but Oftentimes, many times, the ultimate sacrifice is also giving people what they don't deserve of your life, you know, if that makes sense. And so it's not just ultimate sacrifice is not just relegated to someone dying for another. But ultimate sacrifice is oftentimes us giving people what they don't deserve. And it's the best years of our life to build their power, to build their wealth, to build their institutions just so they can turn around and tell us that the full expression of our humanity does not have room to grow here. But it can only be accepted and loved and cherish when we perform and score touchdown and give them memories that they can talk about around the dinner table. And so I wrote this essay last year that I actually, interestingly enough, I did not it, that that we were talking earlier about, you know, what was like included in the book and what was not included in the book um, I wrote this essay last year and it just did not fit in the book. I just felt like, you know, with the way I narrated my time at Clemson, it was, it, I think I, I felt like I did uh, as best job as I could, you know, with that narrative. But I wrote an essay last year called Dear White Clemson Fan. And it was in response to the ways in which many of the uh, white fans were responding, as I said earlier, to uh, athletes standing in, uh, uh, solidarity with 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 the black lives particularly in response to uh the protests and honor uh and memory of many who were lost particularly my arbiter breonna taylor and george floyd um and so i wrote this essay that t- t- trying to trying to trying to argue that you know that our bodies you know forcing white people to seize the see our bodies on the field Forcing white people to see the ways in which our bodies have been forgotten, marginalized and abused on and off the field is not just simply for their like enjoyment and their consumption. But that says something like our humanity, our our being alive, the way Kevin Kwashi writes in his book, Black Aliveness, our being alive is the very fundamental expression of our humanity. And that needs to be taken seriously. But it doesn't just stop there. Like we black people, we are donors. We are alumni. We are taxpayers who, too, have made both America and Clemson what white people imagine as, quote unquote, great. So that means that this institution, this reality, this system also belongs to us. who are fighting for our lives and for our children and the students who look like us, because it's not just simply. That this is the world in which that this religion of whiteness that J.K. McCarter speaks of is not just simply confined to the football field and the ways in which, you know, uh, 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 these fans worship athletes, but also that that worship is also wrapped up in their devotion to their own ideas of their own centeredness and supremacy. So it's like white fans really believe, like truly, like legit, like this ain't even no game. Like they truly believe. That like they own us like like it's like that is not an embellishment that when you believe that athletes can't stand in solidarity with people who look like them and they can't exercise their their First Amendment right uh, to talk about race, to talk about religion, to talk about politics in ways that's alternative or in resistance to dominant forms of thinking about race, religion and politics, then, 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 then you truly believe that you own that person. Uh, because as Alex Walker says, you know, no person is your friend who demands your silence. And so they're not friends in a sense, but it's a certain type of transaction. And I think when we talk about religion and football and things like that, it's not just confined to the ways in which, you know, white religion is so in, in closest proximity to us black athletes, which I write about, about the ways in which, like, I got hooked up with Fellowship of Christian Athletes and, 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 and how that formed me as a person and distance me from my hometown and changed the way I talk and changed the way I thought. But also we need to talk about this religion as the ways in which, like, you know, people believe it's their God given right to own us and to shape, you know, uh, to shape our lives and to 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 tell us the boundaries to which we can live and move and have our being in. And so I remember James Baldwin saying that it is certain that in any case, that ignorance allied with allied with power is the most ferocious enemy justice can have. And if we think about justice, not just simply as, you know, as 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 wrongs being made right, but also as the embrace of the fullness of our humanity, our dignity, our creativity and our capacity to live and create worlds and be in the world. Then we have to say that oftentimes, you know, on the football field, you know, and, and in the institution, you know, we are oftentimes, you know, treated uh, uh, in, in, in ways that are ignorant uh, and in ways that are allied with power that oftentimes, you know, treat us as less than human, a second class and exploit our labor and our creativity and our bodies and continually force us into a system of disrespect. And I think you know. I think many of that needs to change. And hopefully, you know, hopefully over the years, as 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 we exist, as Dave Zirin writes about incredibly in his book, the Kaepernick effect. Who he how he tells the story of so many students, uh, younger people, uh, resonating so much with what Colin Kaepernick did, and 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 the ultimate price he paid uh, of of his livelihood, um, and 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 things like that. Uh, The way Dave Zirin write about in in this moment of the uh, the Kaepernick effect, hopefully we can see a better system and a more equitable system and a system that really takes into account, you know, the fullness of our humanity, not just simply on the field, but when we're off the field, when we're in the classroom, where we're just trying to be normal and human and not just simply cherishing black athletes, but loving black people because we're human and should be protected.
2: You, you mentioned um, Kaepernick and how his taking a stand ended his professional career as he, as he knew it. When you were a student and you were playing, you were a walk-on. Mm-hmm. And at that time, it was 2012, and mm-hmm. Trayvon Martin was killed. He was 17 years old. Yes. And it was... A huge emotional event and there were team players who wanted to protest who wanted to take a picture of a group wearing hoodies in solidarity and you couldn't you felt that you couldn't protest you felt that you could Mm -hmm. not be in the picture you were not secure on the team you were Mm -hmm. a walk-on you you saw yourself as someone who had to be very dependable not just to the team but in your studies uh, that you were representing your family back home, there was so many competing pressures on you.
1: Yes. Um, Yes.
2: Do you feel in some ways it's the former players who need to take a stand because the current players are too precarious, even if they have a contract?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Great question. I, I do think if, if I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, I do think that we former players do have a responsibility to stand up for former athlete for, for current athletes in ways, you know, that I, I that, that I don't think that they can stand for themselves. Um, and I think that that was one of the reasons why I really wanted to write this section the way I did is because I knew that as, as many of my young, young dudes who are still playing college football, whether they're at Clemson, Western Carolina, or other, other, other places, you know, many of them, you know, Will will need in some sense or or I would want them to read something like this so that they can be informed about like, yo, like, yo, this is how you move and maneuver while you're in this space. Like you have to realize that, you know, yes, the name on your name is on the back of your jersey uh uh or, or whatnot, but your name is not on the check, you know, when it comes to who making the decisions. And so I think we have to talk about power dynamics, especially as it relates to college football athletics. And so that's really one of the reasons why I wrote that that narrative uh, the way I did, because I wanted some other athlete to be free who may be wrestling with that question, you know, and that reality that I wrestle with where You know, for me, being good at football was more important than being black. And I don't think that that's just something that I as an individual, you know, struggle with. But I also I often think that this is this oftentimes a story that's that's wrought within, you know, many of the spaces like Clemson University and many of our uh, uh, many of the other kind of division one predominantly white institutions is that being good, being good at football is, is more important than being black and then more important than. Trayvon, as I write, Trayvon's black body being murdered in the streets and our black bodies taking, photo, taking a photo was my black body's distance from both. And I think this represents the kind of dynamic that many of young athletes are wrestling with is many of us feel like there is too much at stake for us to be honest, either about our own limitations when it comes to dynamics of, of, of race and, and black life. Uh, but also the kind of punishment that can be ours if we veer too far from the script that we have inherited uh, inside of this space of, 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 of college football. And so that's probably one of the reasons why I wrote it is like I wanted other young athletes to be free. And I wanted them to know like yo, these are things you need to be thinking about. This can give you a way to think about this critically that 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 that, you know, you have to realize like, yo more important than me just simply you know giving them the best of my life is me finding out and finding myself and what it means to live and love people who look like me while also trying to live and love people who are different than me. And I don't think that there's much room in in, in the space that I walked in uh, uh, to, for that to be a reality because so much is at stake and I don't think you know when so much is at stake, especially as it relates to what you will lose when, when loss, when loss is like the center of your story, then, you know, protests or resistance will not be the method of your being in this space. When, when loss is like at the center of your story, then resistance and protest would not be your method of action because there's too great a cost to pay. And so, I do think for many, for many athletes, which I kind of you know see right now, and even going through 2020, there were so many young dudes who were talking to me, uh, both my both my teammates uh, and, and 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 guys who were still playing ball to this day, uh, who are still playing ball to this day in the league, or who are playing ball now in, in college. We were just talking about so much because they were trying to figure out, you know, how how do I work in this dynamic? And I don't have the answer to that, but I at least wanted to wrestle with that question of the ways in which I I, I saw myself failed in the past and the ways in which I wanted to see us get better in the present.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off
2: there's a sense in that chapter that you're as you're writing it in hindsight you're also at the same time inhabiting the mindset you had at the time and so we see you as the man looking at the teenage boy because you must have been what 18 19
1: yeah when, when yeah. Trayvon
2: was killed yes. she was a teenager you were a teenager the guys on the team who are trying to decide what kind of protests to do their teenagers. This is a huge amount to put onto teenagers to try to figure out how to change the system from within.
1: Oh yes. Oh yes. And I, and, I, and yes, that's a, I mean, that's, that's that, I mean, that's on top of trying to perform. That's on top of trying to perform well, like on the football yeah. field. Cause we're there to play. We're there to do as best we can, like on the field. And, and, and the reality is that like, Sadly, we can't just simply think about being good on the field, but we have to think about being good in real life off the field so that we survive, you know, and that we and we and we make sure that like our parents don't get labeled as bad black parents or that, you know, people who look like us won't get labeled as being bad people, you know. So there's so much pressure on us that oftentimes we're not given ways to think about that does not just simply ignore them and distance us from them. And so you're talking about trying to play well. You're talking about trying to get your schoolwork. You're also talking about trying to build networks outside of the football field, which I feel like we're terrible at that. That oftentimes there's Clemson, you know, and there's black Clemson. And then there's black student athlete Clemson who is given more privilege more love, more protection than black Clemson. And so you have these inequities of power, even within our own kind of racial narratives where we black student athletes are pro- prioritized more, even when we're in a given system of difference that prioritize our humanity less, you know? And so that's an incredible weight to carry um, that. I think we should carry in some sense, because those who came before us, and I'm thinking in particular Paul Robeson, uh, who 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 um, uh who who, uh the the book The Heritage Howard Bryant writes about brilliantly about Paul Robeson as well as William C. Roden in his book A uh, uh, Forty Million Dollar Slave, uh, where where they talk about these traditions of Black athletes, not just simply. Allowing their humanity to be left at the at the in the locker room uh, and be disregarded once they step on the field. But wherever these black athletes went, they took their whole selves and not all of them did that. But many of them did that. And, 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 And that's the complexity of the story is that I represent the person who felt that the cost was too great. I represent the person who failed in a sense, you know, but also in that failure, I can also understand myself. And that's the complexity of the type of story that I was trying to write is that, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to write this triumphal narrative and it's not a triumphal narrative. It just is what it is. And hopefully, you know, as I tried to think about, hopefully you can better understand yourself. I can better understand myself and we could try and find out better ways to respond if and when those moments happen again, because it's like after Trayvon, you you thinking like, oh man, Trayvon moment is just so terrible. But that happened years ago, and now we're here in twenty two two thousand twenty one, and the same thing is still happening to many of our black lives, uh, uh, whether that be uh, uh, young black men, young black women, black uh, gay and trans folk, uh, many many black poor people. Uh, we're still living in a in a country. Uh, that believes that our lives are valued less, as Eddie Glaude write about in his book *Democracy and Black*. There still exists the value gap in our society, uh, and and that that value gap shows up in in a myriad of ways. Um, that I do think that many of us who are who are former athletes uh, have a responsibility to think about and talk about. And that's that's really, I felt like you know when I wrote that 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 essay, dear white Clemson fan, I encourage people uh to, to to check it out. Shameless plug. I, I, I encourage people to check it out. Um, it's an important and, plug it's, huh?
2: it's important.
1: It's an
2: important
1: yeah, plug Yeah, 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 yeah. I felt like cause I felt like, you know, that 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 it was my way of kind of like like just telling white people, I won't, I won't curse right now, but telling white people forget you, but use your imagination for the other word I was going to use. Uh it was my kind of creative creative way of telling white people forget you uh and and the terrible ways you think about black life but it was also my creative way of telling like young black folk like yo hey here it is this the game right here and you're going to need some type of language and some type of framework to think about what's happening um and i wanted to write something that would you feel loved and seen but also you're giving some language and some type of thing you know when to, to to like when you go in this world you don't just need to have you know, an experience talking about your experience of being young and black in this world, but you need some type of critical frameworks to analyze this system so that, you know, we can, we can, we can deconstruct it and and build something better in this place. So, yeah.
2: The book is constructed as a series of essays and each uh, essay has a single word title. One is terror. One is the fire. And every essay is really about a key theme and yet the themes run throughout all of the essays so like you said it's not a a hero's journey where we feel relieved at the end it's a highly complex story of how all of these themes are interwoven and we go back and forth in time and as you said we don't just hear about Trayvon's killing we we don't even really have time to process that when there's another and another and another and in the midst of you telling us about that and you're at Clemson and You have the athlete status when you're on campus. If you go off campus, none of that holds. So you're driving your car and you get stopped. You have no idea why. Your mom has already taught you what to do when you get stopped. And you take us through all of these police cars showing up. And this hope you have that if they can see your Clemson jacket in the car, that this will somehow give you an extra piece of protection off campus, like it does on. Can can you take us through that experience you had as a as a college student?
1: Oh yeah, I'll never forget that night. Uh, I will never never forget that night. And and without kind of you know going too much into the intricacies of detail, just because the story is so detailed in a sense and uh, in in the ways that I write about it. But like you know, I'll never forget what it was like to be in Greenville that night and getting lost and that being. Like, like you would think that, you know, getting lost, you know, that, that somebody would immediately come to your help and, and and think about, you know, hey, like a cop that if, if, if a cop sees a car and you 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 have the awareness that you're lost, but the cop doesn't have that awareness that you're lost. But the immediate the immediate assumption of this police officer is that this person is in the wrong type of car in the wrong type of place at the wrong type of time. And that this is, in some sense, a story that is written within the very history of our country is that oftentimes police officers that we that we have been objectified, we have been demonized and we have been killed and we have been terrorized simply because people have been given power with a badge in the ways You know how I like like and I'm and I'm glad that you noted that and was very perceptive about these running themes and metaphor within my work. I try to be very you know, creative as a as a writer in the craft and in the and in, in the and in the structure and the narrative and the plot to 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 weave these metaphors within my story to 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 have a kind of you know have a working metaphor underneath each each chapter, um, or, or whatnot to have a working metaphor underneath each chapter, and I think and I think one of those metaphors is like. These, and this is what we call them, these white boys with badges. You know, there's something about white boys with badges, you know, uh, because they're they are they they they're 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 treating us in 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 ways that are immature and that are ignorant you know and, and and these these white boys with badges you know are treating us as if we don't matter and so that night it was is a very you know that night was very fearful uh um you know and i didn't even have to you know there's this story you know that that i that our parents tell us that you know you got to be careful you got to watch this and then we get this and we get this from when we we're very young and many people call it talk uh uh uh, or whatnot but i don't want to make much of you know too much of that in the sense because you know many people think as if like every black parent at every moment in their lives are just simply thinking about white racism and white terrorism and giving us the talk as if like every exhausting moment we are thinking about white people and that's just not the case in black life and i would think about imani perry's incredible essay with the atlantic racism is terrible blackness is not. And so, you know, that night though, that was terrible. And that was a terrible moment where me and my mom is existing in the space of fear where, you know, the only thing that really, you know, the only thing that 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 that, that you can really do in that moment is pray that that officer, you know, really is in a good mood that night, you know, that that officer Will see the things that I have on and 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 see, you know, that 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 I'm a young kid and would treat me like a human. And sadly, I'll never forget, I think, I think, I think Kathy Park Hong had a great little line on this, you know, in her book Minor Feelings, where she talked about like, you know, white children. You know, white men can be thought of as children, like white grown men can be thought of as 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 children, you know, but young black people, young Asian people, young uh, Hispanic people, young Native Native American, indigenous folk uh, are are, are thought of as adults too early. And I was hoping that somehow in that moment that that officer would view me as the child that I was, as I write about about athletes when we're on these campus, that's who we truly are with children. But for me, that day was not just another day. It meant, as I write about being in the presence of white people who thought I was suspicious and could think that way for no other reason than their belief in their right to police what they didn't believe was normal. And so that officer didn't think that, you know, me just simply trying to find my way was normal. The officer didn't think that me being in my car, my black Honda was normal. And the officer didn't think that me being in that geographical location in that city was normal. And that night, you know, I, I it taught me a lesson that, you know, in, in this world, that none of that in this world that we live in, this country that we live in, it don't matter how you know how how great my grades is no matter how well i play it don't matter how good i am the more i am you know none of that will protect us against people or from people who view us with suspicion more than they view us as sacred and so that night really you know taught me a lot of things and and really taught me you know that this country judges us differently and 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 and, and i need to be very mindful of that And in some sense, be careful uh, of that, but not not in some sense, you know, make the totality of my being about that. And I think that this is one of the I think this is one of the limitations of so, so much of the conversation about black life is that many people think that black life is just simply about what white people do to us. And it's just not the case. But as uh, Terry Williamson writes, uh, the black feminist theorist, uh, that 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 that. That, that there is a space in our lives, you know, in which we create worlds, black world making. We make the world. And it's not just simply about what white people do to us, but it's about the way we live and move and have our being and perform a world and create things and perform, you know, in ways that cherish our humanity and, and just embrace our ordinariness uh, in ways that, you know, is not concerned just simply about resistance or fighting, or struggling, but simply being alive, being free, and being in love.
2: And you bring us those stories woven throughout all the essays. You introduce us to your mom, to your girlfriend who becomes your wife. Towards the end of the book, we get to meet your grandmother. Can you tell us about some, pick any of the family stories that you want to share? I love all of them. So whichever Uh, you want to start with.
1: I, I love, I love, love, love talking about my grandmother. Um, yeah, I, you know, you know, I, I I really, I really do love talking about my grandmother and just like me and my grandmother, we, we just have such a great, great relationship. Um, when I think about, you know, being a young kid and, and, and like going to grandma's house, you know, for many of us, you know, grandma's house represented so much of the fun things of life that we couldn't wait for. Like we couldn't wait for to go to grandma's house and things like that. And like playing with our cousins and getting together. Cause a lot of times when we gathered at grandma's house, it was like, you know, it was going to be food involved. It was going to be playing involved. It was going to be like, just like running in the woods with sticks, playing so- swords and, 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 and things like that, like play fighting and things like that um but also like in in in, in my grandma's house like there was so much history around you know whether it was in story form or on on you know whether it was in story form or whether it was uh, uh, through pictures. There was just so much history. And my grandmother is an absolutely beautiful person and an absolutely beautiful storyteller. So like when I, when I talk to my grandma, even to this day, I can call my grandma right now, you know, and, and my grandma has this little high pitched way of laughing. So she'll be like, she'll, she'll t- say, she'll tell a story from back in the day. And she'll be like, you know, they, they said
0: this and that and
1: that and that. And then she'll just be laughing. I can't understand hardly anything she's saying, but like that story is bringing her so so much joy. You know, my grandmother is in her upper eighties and you know, that, you know, if we simply do the math, you know, being, being just simply being born, it's, it's 2021, you know, we're living in 2021. And if you think about 80 years ago, just simply, eighty years ago—that's nineteen forty-one. Now, if we think about two thousand twenty-one, and eighty-seven years ago—that's nineteen thirty-four. That's on the back end of the depression. That's that's in the, in the, really in the crux for many many of uh, uh, many of the black folk growing up in, in her time or her my grand, my grandfather. You know, they're growing up in the depression. They're growing up between the wars. They're growing up you Know in the heart of Jim Crow South, they're growing up. I did that 20 years later in 1954 would be Brown versus Board of Education, 21 years later, uh, in 19, I mean, uh, 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 30 years later, uh, in 1964 would be uh, the uh, Civil Rights Act, uh, uh, 30. One years later would be the voting, the voting Rights Act. And so my grandma is someone who came of age in the Jim Crow South who has a particular, very visceral way of understanding what what it means to live and have to raise children in a world have to love and find love and be human and not let this world destroy you to do those type of things and build a world that is beautiful that's not engulfed by the toxicity of white supremacy and so i love talking about my grandmother and we and i never forget you know going back home not too long ago uh and, and sitting on the porch with her and talking to her about the house and talking about my granddaddy uh, who who has dementia right now, and he comes to the door, and he's knocking on the door to get out. He can't let out because you gotta lock everything, you know, and uh, or whatnot. And for those who read, they would know my granddaddy got lost, um, and 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 just you know my grandmother having to go through that, not just go through you know this history. Which is very visceral. This is her reality, and many of our realities. This is this is a reality written on the cracks of her hand, and the lines of her hands, and the her veins that show on her hands, and the and the beating of her chest, and and the graze in her head. This is a history that's written on her body, and I just sometimes just want to sit down with her, like I do and did not too long ago, just sit down and. Grandma, you know, tell me about it. And sometimes she want to tell me, sometimes she don't. And sometimes I got to trick her into telling me Uh, and and things like that, because I truly believe that like their stories, their, their stories don't just simply matter. But I do think that their stories are critical you know, to, to our understanding of our own selves. Um, and I truly believe that as they pass on into far greater lands uh, and, and they go from being elders to ancestors that I believe their stories still speak. And I want to be some type of, I want to be the type of person, uh, you know, I want to be the type of person. I wanted to be the type of person, you know, that, that, that captured my grandmother's story in, in ways that were beautiful And and honest uh, and and true and not hopeful because uh, hope, you know, you know, hope hope is an interesting term uh, or or whatnot that I kind of in some sense wanted to deconstruct in the type of way that I wrote about, you know, my family, whether about my brother or about my mother, about my grandmother, about my granddaddy or about this country or about our faith. You know, I wanted to deconstruct those narratives and write something more honest, more true, more loving. Um, And I do think that, you know, my grandmother, she has so many of those stories and she she represents so much of the type of storytelling that I want to uh, be like. Um, And I felt like it was necessary to write a really black book. And I couldn't write that really black book without writing about a southern black woman who grew up in the Jim Crow South, who's still alive today. And her grandson is a writer. In this moment, I just felt like I had a responsibility to tell her story in in some type of way that, you know, you know, you don't know what life holds. But I at least know that in this book, my grandmother can hold this book and know that, you know, because at the end of at the end of the day, you know, she's lived most of her days and we pray for many, many years. But, you know, she she's 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 blessed to live in uh, uh, so long. But we know that, you know, human beings. You know, we, we have limitations, but I at least know that, you know, that my first book will always, will always uh, have her life and her story uh, just drenched on the pages.
2: You talk about in the book that you keep a journal and we know that you're writing this while you're at a seminary school, in grad school. Um, when did you start keeping a journal and when did you decide to write this book?
1: Yes. I started keeping a journal in 2014, actually. So like when I went through so many Trent when me and jazz went through so many transitions in California, we were stationed in there as I write about in the book, you know, I started reading a little, little bit, but then I started like, you know, I don't know, like, 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 like journaling is just like, you know, it's like this kind of like spiritual practice that, that, that like, like so many traditions lean on. And so Where we were at, you know, I had some friends during that moment. There's like, yo, you should start journaling and writing things down and stuff like that. So I started doing that. Um, And I still like I'm looking behind me in my office and I still got my journals from 2014. I got like maybe like maybe from 2014 to now, maybe like 10, 11 journals. uh, That's just simply my life. In written form you know and it, it goes through my ups and downs and and it really was a, a, a wave of me trying to make sense of myself and really kind of like you know write whatever i felt and, and and try and bring some type of coherence in my story and 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 as i go back in my journal i was telling my wife this the other day you know when i went back in my journal especially for this book i i really had to become a historian of my own self you know so much of going back in time and writing memoir especially being so young i'm only 29 years old and you know writing a memoir at 29 is like it takes some audacity now and i look back now i look back on it like to write a memoir at 29 years old it takes some type of it takes some type of audacity to do that just because like you still got so much life ahead of you you know but i also think that you know i've lived a lot of life as well even in 29 years and i learned a lot and i felt like that like i had to you know, do some archival things on, on my own self and, and and having my journals, you know, allowed me a window and an archive into my own self where I was telling my wife, like, yo, like that dude back there, that dude was terrible. Like I made some like I made some terrible decisions. I made some terrible mistakes. But then there were also moments where I was like, you know, I'm so proud of myself uh, for doing this, for saying this, you know, and things like that. And so when did I when did I know that I wanted to write this book? I guess in some sense, you know, this book, you know, chose me instead of me choosing it like that. I felt like, you know, I had released like a self-published book in 2019 um, and and then people just start recognizing that I actually did have a writing gift. You know, and 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 it was just you know I, I mean I, the reason I published that was like I was like you know there there's devotional and inspirational material out here, but I don't know if it like any devotional inspirational material that really centers black literature, uh, and black lives, and so I wanted to write something like that, and so I did, and it was just kind of me trying it out, um and then it actually ended up being much better than I actually thought it was, and so many people really start affirming you know, start affirming my gift as a writer. And I like to tell people that like this book and many of my writing, you know, now is is not kind of, you know, somebody says something bad about me. So I'm trying to prove them wrong or like, you know, white people did something to me and I'm trying to prove them wrong or somebody back, back home hurt me. So I'm trying to prove them wrong, you know, but it was writing this book is really, you know, I had so many people tell me that I could, and that I was special and I had something to say and I actually believed them. Um, because when, 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 when I never forget this conversation that James Baldwin and Maya Angelou had about, you know, about rage and like, if you're always angry, you can't produce anything you can't create. Uh, and I, and I took that seriously as I was writing my book, uh, there are some angry parts in my book. There are some parts that's full of rage, um, where I had to take breaks in. Uh, but I wanted most of my book to be a type of book to be the type of artwork that was, you know, full of trying to explore what does it mean to be, as June Jordan say, black alive and looking back, at, back at you. And so, in some sense, this book was an expression of that kind of semiotic and poetic gesture uh, in epistolatory form. not uh, like, to to give a nod to, like, James Baldwin. That so much of James Baldwin's work was like in letter form, was in was in epistle form, was in memoir form, was in essay form. Um, and so I wanted to, you know, as, as, as Baldwin did, write something that was like an epistle of love to black people, uh, uh, but also challenge notions of uh, what an American love letter or an American epistle written by a black person would look like in the tradition of, you know, many black writers like Kiese Layman, who wrote an American memoir, uh, 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 Heavy, an American memoir, or Jasmine Ward, who wrote Men We Reap, or Darnell Moore wrote No Ashes in the Fire, or ta Coates, who wrote Between the World and Me, just the tradition of this nonfiction writing um, that, that, that really challenges and centers Black life as it is lived, not just simply as it is stereotyped and caricatured.
2: And that really comes through, we've only been able to touch on really just a, a couple of the chapters of this book because it's so rich and the chapters do make you want to go back to an earlier one and and read things as as you go through the book you you get more and more layers so you want to go back and look at the earlier layer so it's 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 a wonderful book to read deeply and to look Mm -hmm. at the authors that you 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 reference and that you quote Um, it's a beautiful weaving together of of so many kinds of of literature Um, in the few minutes we have left, I'd like to ask you, what do you hope this episode sparks for listeners?
1: Yeah, I, I, th- I, think, I think one of my biggest hopes is, is, is that, like you said, like, like, like listeners um, would, would really take seriously, like, our Black stories are not just simply for white education. Like, our Black stories are not just simply for us Black folk to just simply throw away why our black stories are worth preserving. They're worth loving. They're worth embracing. And I'll never forget this Audre Lorde quote. It is one of my absolute favorite, favorite Audre Lorde quotes. And I think it's a brilliant, beautiful quote that characterized so much of, of, of what I try to accomplish um, in, in, in my own work and, and so much of the ways that I try to Kind of communicate she writes the white father's told us i think therefore i am the black mother within each of us the poet whispers in our dreams i feel therefore i can be free and without getting too much into a close reading of this this one line there's something to be said about writing in such a way that whispers in the dreams of people that Become, that makes imagination come alive that takes seriously as Audre white writes deconstructing the ways that these quote-unquote white fathers who, who set themselves above us who 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 created a world of white supremacy that we inherited and have to live and have to breathe and survive in Who who tell us that, you know, that 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 this kind of quote unquote, uh, this objective, well put together life is real life. This being near to us and thinking in ways we think is real life and what you need. But no, no. The black mother within each of us, the poet, that person whispers in our dreams and tell us that we can be free. And so that's what I want to accomplish in this book is a certain type of freedom that I know can be found and had in our, and our in telling the stories of our lives and embracing those stories and taking them seriously and loving who we are. And, and, and I think, you know, that we don't have to be perfect. Now, I want readers to realize that, yo, black people don't have to be perfect or dead or in performance or in pain to be loved, but that we are human and we are worthy of the deepest love possible. And we are worthy of learning and living in what June Jordan says. We are black alive. And looking back at you.
2: Thank you so much for being on the show today, Dante Stewart, and telling us about your new book, Shouting in the Fire, an American Epistle. You've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.